Why are you up? Why didn't you stay in bed? Well, okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see you. No, no, no apology necessary. I wasn't here today either. This is my first time in class. Yeah, I started to get a sore throat Saturday night, and so I stayed home yesterday, and I didn't meet with Adam. Called him off this morning, saved my voice for tonight. Hmm. You were sick Friday. All right, if you can take your places, please. There is a new handout on the chair right beside the door. If you did not get the most current handout, help yourself. If you haven't gotten the back handouts, help yourself. And there's coffee. Brian, new handout. Before we look at the historical narrative inaugurated in John 1.19, I want to return once more to the cosmological narrative in the prologue so as to feature some remarks on four Greek expressions which appear in these 18 verses. You'll see those Greek expressions on your outline handout. NRK places us at the threshold of eternity past. John does this by recapitulating a phrase which places us at the threshold of the beginning of Revelation, a phrase which places us at the threshold of the beginning of the Bible. NRK are the opening words to Genesis 1.1, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The fourth evangelist chooses a phrase which reprises the opening of the history of Revelation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is John aligning his revelation with that revelation in an organic continuum? 
Is there something about revelation at the creation of the universe which interfaces with revelation at the incarnation of the Logos? I am compelled by the obvious parallels in phrasing, in fact, the exact duplication in phrasing, to ask these questions. There is a profundity here in John 1.1 which connects, which relates, which connects in organic relationship the Logos and the original, the first, the protological creation with John's declaration of the Logos and the new, the last, the eschatological creation. The word of God who lies beyond the first creation in eternity ventures out of that eschatological arena to bring a new creation from eternity into time and space history. The incarnation, the word became flesh, verse 14, is an embodiment of an eternal person in time and space flesh. The incarnation is an intrusion of the eternal second person of the Godhead into history, a pre-existent, an eternally pre-existent person, being, ontos, enters human history by clothing himself with our nature. God, who spoke the creation into existence in the beginning of time, now in the person of his Son enters the creation in the fullness of time. With the coming of the Son of God in the flesh, do we not have a new creation, a new beginning? Is not this pregnant phrase which inaugurates the fourth gospel revelatory of the inauguration of the protological and eschatological creation? Is not God say, John saying in his opening words, Dear reader, you and I are part of a new beginning a new era in the history of creation. Is not John saying, Dear reader, you and I are part of the new creation in Christ Jesus, the Logos, the Word, the Son of God. And in this new creation, you and I are related to the one who was in the beginning you and I are related to the Eternal One who was alive before the beginning. And grace upon grace, in this new creation, you and I are related to the Eternal One who became flesh, who lived and died and rose again and continues eternal forevermore. The creation threshold of eternity past 
is not a mere abstraction. It is a poignant revelation of a better creation in Christ Jesus, the Word of the Father, and belonging to Him, you, yes, you belong to an eternal person whose incarnational advent is the threshold of a heavenly new creation. In that protological creation, God said, let there be light. In this eschatological creation, the Logos Christ Jesus is light. In that protological creation, God said, let there be life. In this eschatological creation, the Logos Christ Jesus is life. In that protological creation, God said, let the light be separated from the darkness. In this eschatological creation, the Logos Christ Jesus shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not overcome it. In the second place, I direct your attention to the word eskenosin, dwelt as it's translated in verse 14. You may note from the marginal reading in some of your Bibles that this word literally means tabernacled. The Son of God became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. Now this word tabernacled to refer to the incarnate Son of God is John at his richest, his most vivid, in fact, his redemptive historical best. For that word, eskenosin, pushes our imaginations back to another tabernacle, a protological tabernacle, which Moses erected in the wilderness at the center of the tabernacles of the people of God. The Mosaic tabernacle was a tent, a portable, movable tent. It was a dwelling tent for the Lord God, even as the people of the Lord God dwelt in tents in the wilderness. As Israel sojourned in tents in the wilderness, so God sojourned in a tent in the wilderness. Now, you will remember that the tabernacle was a portable tent with two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. There was a curtain called the veil, which separated the holy of holies, God's inner dwelling place, from the holy place, even as sin separates God from his people. And there was furniture in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and furniture in the holy place, table of unleavened bread, lampstand, incense altar. And you will remember that outside the door of the holy place was the altar of burnt sacrifice and a laver for washing. All this imagery... All this furniture 
was God's revelation of his tabernacling with his pilgrim people. But the Apostle John declares here in verse 14 that the protological tabernacle is surpassed. It is replaced. It is displaced and replaced with an eschatological tabernacle. Not a tabernacle made with skins and wood and gold overlay, but a living tabernacle, a tabernacle in the flesh, a tabernacle to once and for all reveal no more tabernacles. That age is replaced by a better one, one in which the Word of God tabernacles in the midst of history. Now, the theology of the tabernacle is a rich discussion in its own right. I want to lay before you this evening three elements of the theology of the tabernacle which come to their eschatological fullness in the incarnation of the Son of God. When the pillar of God's glory cloud descended upon the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, it was a declaration of God's condescension to man. That is, God came down to pitch his dwelling with man in a tabernacle made with hands. This is the incarnational vector of the Old Testament tabernacle. God humbles himself to dwell in the midst of his people. He accommodates himself incarnationally, coming down to dwell in a tent alongside his tent-dwelling sons and daughters. Next, when God tabernacled in the wilderness, he invited his people, his sinful people, to draw near to him through the mediation of a priest. For sinful men and women to come into God's dwelling place, they were dependent on a go-between, an intercessor, one who would stand between them and God, one who would offer up sacrifices for them to God, one who would relate them to God and God to them. This is the relational vector of the Old Testament tabernacle. In dwelling with his people, God dwells in their midst in relationship. He invites them to come unto him through a mediator, and he comes to them through a mediator. God accommodates himself relationally, coming down to be their God and to take them as his people. Incarnational aspect, relational aspect, and finally, eschatological aspect. As the Lord God invites his sons and daughters into his dwelling place, albeit by a mediator, it is into 
his house, his glory house, his glory dwelling place that he invites them. In humbling himself to dwell in the tabernacles of men, he calls his children into his very presence, his inner sanctum presence, his face-to-face glory presence. Come unto me, he cries. Come through the blood of atoning sacrifice to me, he cries. Come through the hands of a mediator. Come to me, he cries. Come and dwell in my house, a tabernacle not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Come to my eschatological house, my eschatological dwelling place. Come and sit at my feet in my everlasting dwelling place, come to me. And when you come into my house, I will cover you with my glory. I will shed the light, the fire-like light of my presence upon you. And I will bathe you with eternal glory light. I will cover over all your sins, all your iniquities, I will cover over with the mediatorial blood of my covenant. When you come into my house, I will be your God forevermore, and you will be my child forevermore. Will you not come to my house and tabernacle with me even as I have come to you to tabernacle to pitch my tent with you. And the Word, the Son of God, became flesh and tabernacled, pitched his tent condescended to our nature, related himself to our flesh without sin, dwelt in our story, our history, so that our story could be fulfilled in the eschatological dwelling of the children of God with their Lord and their Savior forevermore. In the third place, I direct your attention to verse 18. And the word monogenes, traditionally traditionally translated only begotten. As I noted in a previous lecture, I follow the reading monogenes, theos, only begotten God, in place of the reading monogenes huyas, only begotten son. There is essentially no difference if we read God or son. The point of contention is the word monogenes, its etymology and its meaning. 
Before examining this controversy, let me re-emphasize the symmetry of the inclusio around the prologue. Two occurrences of Thaos, God, in verse 1. Two occurrences of Thaos, God, in verse 18. The twofold occurrence of Thaos at the beginning and closing of the prologue adds some weight to the oldest manuscript evidence from P66 and P75 for only begotten God. But it is the translation of monogenes which will occupy us for the next few moments. It has become fashionable to render the Greek term by the English word only or one and only, as the New International Version does. The emphasis falls upon the uniqueness of the Son of God, not his origin or generation. Thus, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, New International Version, not for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, New American Standard Version. I have no intention of denying the uniqueness of the Son of God. Rather, I heartily endorse it. There is none like him. He is the one and only ontological Son of God. But the precise question at issue, the status questionis is, does monogenes mean simply one and only, or does it suggest more than that, ineffably more than that, marvelously, gloriously, eternally more than that? First, the data. In John's writings, Monogenes appears in John 1, 14 and 18, John 3, 16 and 18, and 1 John 4, 19. Second, etymology. Monogenes is a compound Greek word. Mono, only, genes, generated or begotten. It would seem that from the etymological Greek, the phrase only begotten would be the preferred translation, not one and only. This is the conclusion of Fritz Buschel's article in Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It is also the meaning confirmed in the important article by John Doms in New Testament Studies for 1983. I should note that this is the meaning defended by many commentators, notably Rudolf Schnockenberg and Barnabas Linders. Furthermore, in the era of Greek reflection on the Greek New Testament, the era of the early church fathers, only begotten is the nearly unanimous meaning chosen And this sense is capped off by Jerome's choice of the Latin word unigenitus as the equivalent of monogenes. And there is no argument that unigenitus means only begotten. 
Some have suggested that genes in monogenes derives from the Greek verb ginomai. If so, a check of the definition of ginomai in the standard Greek lexicon, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, indicates that ginomai may mean to be begotten. And if genes in monogenes derives from the Greek word genao, to become the father of, as other scholars have suggested, then the idea of being begotten is once again supported. This is certainly clear from 1 John 5.18, where the Son of God is described as the one begotten of God. Genethes ek theo. Now notice precisely what John is saying in this place in his first epistle. The Son of God is begotten of God, God the Father. Here is a clear affirmation in the New Testament that the Son of the Father is begotten. John's word here in 1 John 5:18 derives from the verb genao, not ginomai. Putting this whole somewhat complex picture together, genes in monogenes may just as easily be derived from genao as ginomai, but in either case, the sense of monogenes must mean only begotten, not one and only, because that is how the inspired apostle contextualizes the sense in his very own epistle and in his gospel. Monogenes is a unique, mono-begetting genes, not a mere uniqueness. You see, to define monogenes as one and only reduces the compound Greek word to only mono. It does not do justice to genes, the begetting. Monogenes means only begotten. The contexts in both John's gospel and John's epistle require it. Avoiding the translation of monogenes as only begotten while preferring the translation one and only suggests an intentional shift away from the traditional concept derived from this term, the eternal generation of the Son of God by the Father. In fact, one recent office bearer in a Reformed denomination has written, and I quote, yeah, it's real simple, there is no eternal generation of the Son, unquote. Yeah, it's real simple. There is no eternal generation of the Son, quote, unquote. Now, if office bearers in an orthodox Reformed denomination are making statements like this, we need to examine primary sources to determine whether the patristic doctrine, the church doctrine, the Reformed doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son of God that is, that God the Son is eternally begotten of God the Father, whether that is a true and accurate explanation of monogenes in the context of the whole revelation regarding the Father and the Son, 
or whether the Greek term means merely that he is a unique son in a singular one and only way. Let me add to my case for the eternal generation of the Son of God from the term monogenes, the following. John's Gospel makes it clear that monogenes is a term applied to the Logos of God, the Word of God, the Son of God, before he is sent into the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes son. When God gave his son, he was already monogenes. When God determined to give his son, he was already monogenes. From eternity, when God determined to give his son, his son was eternally monogenes. I believe this is very clear in verse 18 of the prologue. The only begotten, monogenes, who is in the bosom of the Father. That phrase indicates a clear coexistence an eternal coexistence of the monogenes with the Father. Thus, according to John 1.18, as long as the Father has a bosom in which the monogenes may lie, so long does the monogenes lie in the bosom of the Father. And how long is that? It is eternal. If there is any doubt about the pre-existence, the eternal pre-existence of the Son of God, the prologue dispels all doubt. He is existent in the beginning, at the creation. The Word of God, the Son of God, is. That means eternal existence, confirmed by the phrase, and the Word was God, verse 1. Notice, if God is eternally preexistent and the Word is God, then the Word is eternally preexistent. Now, it could be imagined that monogenes does not attach to the Word's divine sonship. However, John 3.16 and John 3.18 are quite clear. Monogenes huyas, monogenes son, only begotten son. So if the Son of God is eternal God, as the prologue tells us, and the Son of God is labeled monogenes, as John 3:16 and 18 do, then monogenes is eternal God as the Son is eternal God. The only one eternally begotten Son of God is the one eternal Son of God. I am very concerned about this tendency to reduce the definition of monogenes to only one side of the word, mono only. And when we add to the current trend the statement of our erstwhile Reformed office bearer, quote, there is no eternal generation of the Son, unquote, I am concerned that the traditional church doctrine of the Trinity, the traditional Reformed doctrine of the Trinity, the traditional biblical doctrine of the Trinity is imperiled. 
permit me to go a step further and point out that the terms father and son used to name the first and second person in the Godhead are biblically incontrovertible. These are the divinely inspired terms these divine persons use to name themselves and to name one another. I didn't invent the terms. They are in the inspired text. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him, says God the Father. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, says God the Son. The relational terms, relational terms of paternity, fatherhood, and filiation, sonship, are infallibly revealed in the Bible, in the very gospel records in which the two persons mutually address one another. God the Father calls Jesus his Son. Jesus, God the Son, calls God the Father his Father. The names Father and Son are not incidental to the persons. They define the persons. The Father is a person distinct but not separate from the Son. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is a person distinct but not separate from the Father. The Son is not the Father. As a footnote, we may say the same of the Holy Spirit, but our focus here is on monogenes, something unique to the Father-Son relationship, not a term used of the Father-Holy Spirit relationship or the Son-Holy Spirit relationship. Monogenes stands peculiarly and particularly definitive of who the Father is in relation to the Son and who the Son is in relation to the Father. In other words, monogenes is a term in relation a term of inter-Trinitarian relation, a term which says something about the Father as Father and the Son as Son. That is to say, monogenes is freighted. It is packed with the relational fullness of the full relationship between God the Father and God the Son. I cannot... You cannot, no one can isolate monogenes from those who are related, eternal related, eternally related by it as father and son. This means that regardless of the controversy over the etymology of monogenes, which in my personal opinion is an implicit form of reductionism, as all liberal functional Christology reduces, yea, rejects ontic Christology, please note, the liberals virtually unanimously concur in defining monogenes as one and only. But regardless of the controversy of the etymology over monogenes, the term monogenes is ontologically involved in the personhood, the eternal personhood of the Father and the Son. So what is it to be the Father, even the Eternal Father? It is to do what a Father does, to have a Son, and to have that Son eternally as you Father Him eternally. 
And what is it to be what a son is? It is to be begotten by the Father and to be begotten as Son as eternally as He fathers you. If the Bible calls the Son's Father, Father, and that Father is eternal God, then that Son of the Father is eternal Son of the Father. In fact, He is eternally begotten Son of the Father because he is only begotten Son of the Father. As long as the Father is Father, fathering the Son, so long is the Son being begotten of the Father. How long is that? Eternal. An eternal Father, eternally fathering, and an eternal Son, eternally begotten of his eternal Father. Eternal Father, Eternal Son, Eternal Begetter, Eternally Begetting, Eternally Begotten, Eternally Father of the Son, Eternally Son of the Father. Monogenes has a uniqueness, but it is not the reductionism of non-traditional theologies and Christologies. It is the uniqueness of an eternal paternity and an eternal filiation. This is the one term that precisely in its uniqueness captures the eternal distinction of personhood in the Father and the Son. The Father begets eternally as only a God-begetting Father can do. The Son is begotten eternally as only a God-begotten Son can be. Notice John 1.18, P66, P75. I have a theological reason for taking that reading. Only begotten God. Yeah, it's simple. There is eternal generation. Because the Bible's revealed language requires it even as the Bible's revealed language requires the Trinity. You want to be a fundamentalist, and you say there's no text that says eternal generation, then there's no text that says Trinity. So you're going to throw them both out. That's what a fundamentalist does. Is that what we're headed for? Self-revelation of the Father and the Son requires eternal generation. Honesty with respect to the etymology of terms requires eternal generation. But the full-orbed being of the Father and the Son, the genethes, 1 John 5.18, and the monogenes, the personal relation, the ontological personal relation between an eternal Father and an eternal Son, the church doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son by the eternal generation of the Father, These concepts arise from the significance of all the data in biblical theological context, not not monogenes in atomistic reductionism to feed personal agendas, which if not checked, if not corrected, will lead, in my opinion, to Arianism, to Unitarianism, and worse. And it is a broad in the Reformed world, and it is a shame. 
for additional reading on the eternal generation of the Son of God and the traditional biblical doctrine of the Trinity. I highly recommend Athanasius on the incarnation of the Word. You can download it from the Internet or check it out from our seminary library. Francis Turretin's superb, perhaps unsurpassed section on the Trinity and the deity and the eternal generation of the Son of God in his Institutes of Elenctic Theology, Volume 1, pages 253 to 310. I must say, as a personal testimony, I never saw the pieces fall into place until I read Turretin on the Trinity. It is a masterpiece. Slow, deliberate, take your time, meditate on it, think about it carefully. But if you have problems with this concept of the eternal generation of the Son of God, read Turretin. You can do no better. Gerhardus Voss's The Self-Disclosure of Jesus, pages 212 to 226. And currently, Robert Lethem, The Holy Trinity, which in some ways is... Uh, a best modern statement, although there are some little quirks there. Now, I'd like you to take the gray hymn book that is in front of you and turn in the back of it to page 815. And look with me at the Athanasian Creed. where I'm going to begin three paragraphs from the bottom of this creed named in honor of Athanasius, though he did not write it. But it certainly captures his Trinitarian theology. In fact, the biblical Trinitarian theology. Thus, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity and their unity in their Trinity. I have selected that passage from this uh, universal creed of uh, the biblical and church doctrine of the Trinity 
in order to show you what I believe is one of the finest creedal statements of the doctrine of the Trinity, but to reinforce what I have just said about the significance of the eternal generation of the Son and the eternal begetting of the Father from this ancient confessional document. There is nothing here which would be objected to in Christendom throughout the world for the most part. This is a universal affirmation of the triune doctrine of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so I am now going to ask you to turn back to page 815, and I am going to ask you to join me in confessing your faith in the doctrine of the Trinity by reading with me where I began to read before to the end of where I stopped before. Shall we confess our faith in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller in their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Amen. Notice the next phrase. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. Double. Amen. The one thing I regret about being in the Presbyterian tradition is that we do not have the Athanasian Creed in our confessional forms. And I kind of envy the continental tradition which has included it, though I note, as I've worshipped in Christian Reformed and United Reformed churches over the years, that they don't use it. Why not? It's glorious. I even had to off-print it when I was a pastor and stick it in the bulletin so my people could read it. All right, I will pause at this point to summarize and then to give you a chance to ask questions or take a break. I have belabored this matter of the meaning of monogenes 
because I labor to show the ontological relations between the ontological father, begetter eternally, and the ontological son, begotten eternally. In so doing, so understanding, so believing, we glorify the Father and the Son as they have revealed themselves unto us. Praise the name of the Father and his relation to the Son. Praise the name of the Son and his relation to the Father. Praise the name of the Holy Ghost and his relation to the Father and the Son. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Do you have any questions or comments before you stretch your legs? Benji? I'm not certain that I can fathom the reasons in the uh, reform community which has generated this. The individual whom I'm citing is suggesting that there is only economic distinction. There is no ontological distinction. Uh, That's a serious error, in my opinion. If I were talking about liberals then I would be able to attribute this to the dominant functional Christology which has triumphed in Western Christendom since the Enlightenment and beyond. In other words, the objection to metaphysical deity incarnate in flesh. Jesus can only think he's the Son of God. He can only act as a Son of God. He can only be adopted as a Son of God. He can't be metaphysical, ontological God the Son. Cannot be. Because we're enlightened people. Gods don't come into bodies, etc. So this modern distinction between ontological Christology and functional Christology Uh, Does that account for the New International Translation? I think the NIV has been snookered by their own ego and their own attempts to become translational geniuses. Uh, They have not uh, done their homework well enough, let alone has anyone taken on the TLG, which is a Thesaurus Linguae Graecae, which is the corpus of the whole Greek canon from Homer, 900 B.C., to the Byzantine Empire, 15th century A.D., all on one CD-ROM with every Greek word in the corpus. Now, if you're going to prove your case against monogenes, you better have done your homework on that body of data. That is thousands of pages of Greek. Now, I don't know what the burr under the saddle is, why they are not content with the good old ways, which are the good old ways of the Apostle John. I have no idea. Do they 
want to pry into secrets that they have no business prying into? Are they not content with the creedal definitions of the church? Or are they so ignorant that they have never read the fathers and the era in which this whole matter was duped out? And if you graduate from Athanasius, then you go to the Cappadocians, who are the greatest Trinitarian theologians in the whole history of the Christian community. So don't come to me and talk to me about what you think generation or begetting means until you have read Athanasius and Basil and Gregory Nazianzus and Gregory Nyssa. And if you haven't read them, enroll in Northwest Seminary's patristic course and you'll read them. Right, Benji? Right, Adam? Amen. David. Okay, that's an economic relation, not an ontological relation. That, that's how they dismiss it. Uh, but I know that you're suggesting, David, that you know because we have this relationship economically, it's because of an ontological relationship between the Father and the Son. He calls us sons of God because he is the ontological Son of God. Now, there is a majestic... Uh, uh, attribute. There's a majestic uh, uh, term that he would give you the same name derivatively that he gives to his son eternally and ontologically. That he would name you with the same name. Call you son. Ah, what grace is that? Amazing grace indeed. Skeet? Yeah, if you take a look at, at Hebrews 1, the nuance there is that it has the same sense that when God begets a son, he begets him as he begets, namely eternally. That's the way the church has interpreted it. I don't see any reason to disagree with that general interpretation. All right, go ahead and stretch your legs. Round two coming up.